Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Nice. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening. Whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Jean Turnbow. I'm your other host, Susan Fox. And with us... Is John R. White, author of The Airship Neverland... The Adventures of the Airship Neverland. And I can edit that. Yep. <laughs> you want to you do that one again? John R. White, the author of The Adventures of the Airship Neverland. Welcome to the show, John. Uh, hi, how are you guys doing? Um, hopefully you're not melting in the incredible heat out there. Not yet. It was a lot hotter last week. Oh, my gosh. It is now reduced to summer and not often. So we're good. How are you? Um, we're, we're really good. Fortunately, our, uh, our landlord installed a new air conditioner in our living room and we'll be installing a new one in the bedroom tomorrow before it hits to the horrible scorching humidity that is Ohio. Oh gosh. Yeah, we, uh, this is, this is our first show in a while. We had put the show on hiatus for about six weeks. <coughs> so, um, we are, I think we are. We're up to number 200. I think, are we? Yes. This is not show 199? I don't think so. I'll have to check. Um, It might be. Well, if it's 200, I'm honored. (laughs) It's 199. Ah, well, okay. (laughs) We came back just for you in either case. (laughs) Well, thank you. So So I got hooked on these books. Was that a pun? I'm greatly flattered. Was that a pun? Yes, it was. (laughs) It, that was a, a Neverland pun. <laughs> she was hooked. This is not your parents' Peter Pan, guys. This is this is uh, Peter the uh, Pan, the 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 Prince of the Air Nation, in a very. I, I like. I'm sorry. I, I like to uh, compare it when I'm trying to explain it uh, to people. As I took Peter Pan and. Um, Mixed it in the style of the Pirates of the Caribbean and then threw some speed into it. There, was, there were definitely drugs involved, I think. <laughs> yeah. Making Nikolai, uh, making Nikolai Tesla a pivotal character, I think, was a, a nice touch. It is, it is steampunk to the max. Oh, yes. What, what's really funny is Nikola Tesla wasn't actually in the original draft. It was Thomas Edison. And I, well, I, I'd only come to really get into steampunk about 2007. Uh, probably 15 years earlier, I had started illustrating a graphic novel um, called Gaslight Incorporated. 
But I didn't know what steampunk was. I just you know, was writing this as a Victorian science fiction. And then um, when somebody explained to me steampunk, I'm like, oh, that's what I was do- doing earlier. But then when I formally got introduced to steampunk and found out that uh, Edison was generally reviled by everyone uh, and they adored uh, Tesla, I, I stripped him out, <laughs> stripped Edison out and put in Tesla yeah, Edison was Edison was not known for playing nice with others. He would he would sue people into oblivion, ruin their lives over over things that he didn't actually own. <laughs> well, he was kind of the original high tech uh, technology baron. Yeah, and he was also one of the first trademark trolls. Hmm. Yeah, well, you know, we, we live in um, we live in Toledo, Ohio. And so we're not actually that far from like Edison's museums and and things around things around here, which we've never actually gone to. I, I'd much rather go to Wardenclyffe if given the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no no denying either man's opportunities and and uh, pardon me accomplishments. And uh, on the other hand, yeah, I think Tesla works better with his quirks and and just just generally being interesting. Uh, it's probably more interesting to write. Well, definitely he's a more interesting individual. Um, when I did the research on him, his father was actually, a, um, I think, a priest or just very, very relig- um, religious. And he was the one that really pushed um, Tesla to be well-read and to be uh, well-educated. And so just as an individual, uh, he was really interesting. Of course, I have never bothered out if he was married and, and stuff like that because I wanted him um, to have a romantic interest um, and uh, I'm, I'm blanking I'm blanking on her name Zoya, Zoya. and um, so that I could spin that off so I wanted the the classical Russian peasant girl with all of her fears to be you know contrasted uh, very worldly Tesla or one was going to be more curious and the other one would be uh, more frightened, and so I have no idea if he had married kids or anything like well, that. Well, no, unfortunately, no, he didn't. Uh, he he died broke and kind of delusional. He fell in love with a pigeon, <laughs> and he wrote love uh, letters to this pigeon, and it's it was it was actually a very sad ending for his life. Well, I know that his part apartment is still in the building. Uh, that there's like. I forget which building it is, but I saw that they had a marking, a plaque that he actually lived in this this one office complex, mm-hmm. or what's now an office complex. And it, it seems, you know, just very contemporary for the time that you had brilliant people like Poe and Tesla uh, that, that contributed so much and then died in obscurity. Um, and that seemed seems to happen a lot with a lot of geniuses. I mean, you can even go as far as to take, you know, Robin Williams, um, brilliant, brilliant man contributed a lot of happiness to the world, but died a a very ignominious death, which is, which is really unfortunate. That was lost to the world in all their cases, really, which, which probably should lead us to the topic of, uh, creativity, genius, and mental illness. I've been very open to the fact that, that I have a bipolar disorder. Um, and even 
didn't like right up to coming to this interview. I, I had to take an anxiety pill. Not that this was a terrible you know or, ordeal, but I get really anxious out of nowhere, or just even if I get you know like oh no, uh, like even when I run my D and D games, um, it's almost like performance anxiety. I'll start to have an anxiety attack because I put all this undue pressure on myself. Um, and, but once, once I usually sit down at a keyboard and start writing or, you know, once I start running a game, then I'm kind of in my element. Um, but anytime that I'm not certain exactly what's going to go on, I start to get anxious. So that's probably a little bit of my OCD that I have as well. Perhaps that is part of what makes you such a good writer. Because this, when you create the world yourself, you have confidence that everything's okay. Everything is going the way you plan it. You know, the way yes. you intend it to go. Yes, yes, and no. Uh, no. Um, I, I started reading very, er, very early. Um, I've talked about you know quite a bit that I'm victim of child sexual abuse by my. Um, by my father. I'll, I'll go ahead and be open about that. Wow. Wow. But um, I've, I've talked about, well, it wasn't just me. It was my sisters as well. And it, it was like before I could remember. I mean, it was in, went up to about the time I was 10 or 11. And so that's where most of that damage came in. But I would always go off by myself and hide by myself. Fortunately, my dad was a submariner. So he's gone six months out of the year. So, um, but I, I started reading like the Encyclopedia Britannica and the World World you know Book of Knowledge and stuff like that around the time I was four or five. Um, you know, I was painting when realistically when I was four, four, and so I think there's this combination of trauma with probably a predisposition, you know, for creativity and in. in you know, you know, being smart. I don't know how, how you want to say that without sounding arrogant, but I just read everything I could get my hands on, uh, hands on. And I mean, that was just the, the world for me. And I started reading, you know, a lot of just very complicated book books, um, fairly early on because it was, I liked being by myself. When you kind of go through that trauma, you really don't like being around a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, so I would just, you know, huddle off. And I mean, my dad had a huge, you know, um, collection of books, most of which pornography. But, but I mean, he had uh, like the Destroyer series, um, you know, uh, Star Trek, uh, Lord of the Rings, a uh, bunch of the original like Star Trek paper, you know paperback book so i just read everything i could get my get my hands on and then you know about time i was 12 or 13 you know king stephen king was coming out out and you know i loved the stand to me it's still my favorite book and i think the greatest uh book ever written by a uh, living american and so just once you get into all of that and you know, like i was telling susan before you know, I love Jerry, uh, Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell. I loved uh, Footfall and Lucifer's Hammer. Anything that had a huge cast, because that's where I really started getting into world building. You know, mm -hmm. it is when you could see that the, these authors would just 
populate a whole world, you know, and there's so many subplots going on and so much character balance. It it was like being in kind of like in your own universe neighborhood where you got to know all these people and understood the dynamic. And that's just kind of, I think, where I fell in love with telling stories and, and reading all about it was just the interplay between human beings. And and uh, this this clearly informs your your uh, Neverland books. Yeah, I, I mean, in, in what, what's really funny is the very first book I wrote was called Thorm's Journey. I wrote it on a green Smith Corona typewriter <laughs> when I was a freshman or, or, or freshman or sophomore in high school. So I was been about thirteen or fourteen. And it was a story of two angels, one that had been fired and one had been laid off. Um, and they just went on, a, you know, this strange, these strange different um, adventures where they ran across Amelia Earhart and the Flying Dutch and in space. And there was a space shuttle. Um, and this is looking back, I can tell that I was probably too advanced for my age. I was like, right, 13 <laughs> Because, uh, you know, they get on the space shuttle and the space shuttle gets launched into space and it's called the USS Deficit. In the line, in the, air, <laughs> the deficit is up, it's up, it's going out, it's going out of sight, you know. And, and I was like 13 writing this. Um, oh, that's funny. <laughs> and and I, I've debated going back and writing it uh, sometime, but then I've also wondered if I ever ran a a very young Kevin Smith, and he just stole all my ideas. Uh, <laughs> but um, but it's just like that was the first book book I wrote, and then I started writing um, when I was in. Um, I was been married probably four or five years to my first wife, and I started writing the book Cold Steel Days, which I still. I worked on really hard for a while and wanted to get done. And then I just decided I didn't really like writing on this book anymore. But, you know, that was my first serious effort at hardcore science fiction. But it was the thing I discovered. It's so stoic and so rigid a book. There's not really any room for fun in it. And so I I, kind of threw that to the the side and – it would have been 2010. I was having a conversation with the um, art, uh, artist and creator um, Tess Fowler, and uh, she she did um, I see uh, Kittleabotomy uh, and the Rat Queens, mm-hmm. and she she had posted something on Facebook uh, about some abuse that she had gone through. And then she was the first person that I ever didn't know that I just we started talking back and th- forward through Facebook. And then we wound up, t- you know, calling and talking to each other on the phone for like 12 hours. Gosh. And just talking about similar, um, you know, similar experiences and what we were going through in, in all of this, because I was still a very damaged individual uh, at that point coming out of, you know, I'd gotten divorced in 2004, which was a really, really ugly divorce mm. because my ex divorced me s- strictly for the reason that I was bipolar and she didn't want to deal with me anymore. Um, and so I wandered around for se- several years, not really knowing what to do with myself. But in this conversation, you know, she was listening to some music and, and I'm like, who is that? That sounds really cool. And she's like, well, that's Abney Park. 
<laughs> and and I'm like, oh, I hadn't heard about them. They're steampunk. Well, what's steampunk? And then she told me, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I did this graphic novel. And then as we were talking, I said, you know, Peter Pan would be really fun to steampunk. And she's like, you ought to go do that. Well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> after that conversation, uh, and only working part-time and having being single and having access to way too much Mountain Dew, I knocked out... <laughs> uh, I knocked out volume one in 10 weeks. Wow. Um, and yeah, this is, this is not, and for those listening, this is not, uh, 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 uh slapdash work. When you, it's, you, it's you might have, thousand words plus. Yeah. You, you might have done that in 10 weeks, but it does not read like somebody who hurried it along. It reads like somebody who belabored and loved every word and sculpted every sentence. Everything. This is, it's, it's an intricate clockwork, and every piece works with every other piece, and you, you mustn't miss anything. Oh, exactly. Yes. I had, a lot of fun, I had a lot of fun doing it, and to be perfectly honest, uh, Volume 1, you know, Tales of the Airship Neverland, was the easiest to write because the plot was already established for me. All the characters were there. I just had to tweak them and adjust them and, you know, figure out what I'm going to do. And usually what I do in a book is I write the last chapter first. Yeah. Okay. Um, and because, you figure out how you get there. Yeah. Because a lot of times when you're, because I do write by stream of consciousness. And um, if you, if you talk, you know, talk to me at any great length, I, I tend to go on and on and, and in circles. Um, but if I write the last chapter first, even if I don't use it, even if I throw it out and don't like wh where it was, I at least have a guiding point, you know, point. Mm -hmm. Somebody says, well, don't you, you know, plot out chapter by chapter? And I'm like, no, you know, that to me isn't any fun. Um, my last chapter and then let the characters go. But, you know, basing it on Peter Pan, um, which is in the, um, Peter and Wendy is in public domain. Um, the rest of his works are debated. You know, in England, not, a lot of them aren't in public domain, but all the characters that I took were from Peter and Wendy. And, you know, because somebody was like, well, isn't Disney going to come get you? And I'm like, they can try. But um, so volume two, um, uh, Captain Hook and the Pirates of Mars, the only thing I had in that, there was the name. That's all I knew is I wanted to do something on Mars. And um, then after a while, I came up, I was actually listening to um, the soundtrack to Sherlock Holmes. And there's a track called Discombobulate. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like a locomotive engine. It just has that intensity and repetition. And that caused me to think of having this great train train chase across the surface of Mars in, in which there would be a crash into Valmarineris, the great, the great Canyon. And so I wrote that, that was the, the first chapter I wrote, which isn't directly the last chapter, but it winds up being very far in the end. And so everything else is just plotted getting to that point. And that one took six months to write. And then uh, Dust and Ash took me close to eight months to ten months to write because I had to tie up all the loose threads mm -hmm. in, the, in the narrative. And somewhere in there, 
where I'd gotten the books done, but I was waiting to you know, get stuff out and released and paste and stuff like that. I wrote um, Fairy Dust Never Rust strictly as something to put out there to keep the interest going going and not have the name, you know, fade out. But in writing it, I'm like, I have so many questions that I need to answer, you know, for myself. Uh, like, you know, what was Wendy's backstory? Why is she the individual um, she is? You know, why does she have one brother that's, you know, a, a priest and, and the uh, friendly inquisitor for the church faithful? You know, um, you know, where did Tinkerbell, you know, first get her wings and learn to fly and stuff like that? And then Fatima uh, really, really needed a backstory. Fatima obviously came from a very damaged and and horrible past and and came through it all and became very, very remarkable. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, throughout the series, I mean, um, I think it's a I think it's in book two where it comes out that she's bipolar. And um, in in doing the research for that, I'm like, when did they first discover that term and all that? And it was like 1860, 1870. Uh, A French guy, and he referred to it as the circular madness, uh, circular foiler or something like that. And um, so I'm like, okay, well, obviously, you know, the illness has been around, but it was really first diagnosed in there. And so there's this, scene with um, Fatima and her lover Dark Shines where basically Fatima just blows her off. She decides that she wants a kid and she can't have it with Dark Shines and so she's going to get rid of him and hook up with a guy so she can have a kid. And there's this horrible emotional you know rending uh, between Dark Shines who's always been at her you know, aside, and I, I go through this long narrative where Dark Shines talks about everything that she'd gone through, you know, where she would drag uh, Fatima out of bars because she would just randomly go hook up with guys, which hypersexuality is is a um, symptom of bipolar um, and just all these different things. And you know, a lot of that came from me. A lot of that came from other people I knew that had, had their struggle. So with bi- uh, bipolar, but the um, the breakup of the marriage and the pain as a result, you know, result of that or the relationship with them came really out of the sense of betrayal um, that I had with my first marriage, where you're like you're just being cast aside, and you know, like I don't understand. Except you know, there's a little bit of role reversal in there, but you know, she she also I wanted to have a, a, a GL, G, I wanted to have basically a bisexual or, you know, lesbian character in there because in the steampunk audience, um, there is such diversity. I mean, my sister's lesbian, she's married, but there's such diversity. And I felt that it was really imperative to me to have characters that are very representative, you know, of the audience that you're reading, like in the, Mm -hmm. uh, Epiphany James book, which I'm going to write next. Um, I'm, have some characters originally going to be in, in a series of books called um, the Tinkerbell Chronicles, but I just wanted to divorce myself from, from the airship Neverland world for a while. But um, Frankenstein's monster is in there and he's gay because oh, he looks at men as being the exemplar of everything that he's not. 
you know, this is you know, he looks he looks at this very handsome man whose name is Shepard, whom I named in honor of Michael Shepard, uh, who was murdered um, several years ago. Um, Matthew, Matthew Shepard, Matthew Shepard. Thank yeah. you. And so he looks at this actor, Shepard, who's just physically beautiful and very intelligent in all of this. And he looks at himself and he feels deficient and, and, and ugly and, and hideous. And so I'm like, realistically, a character like that would probably be more drawn to somebody that that has qualities that he wants in himself but doesn't have. And so, you know, that's why uh, I went with that direction. And, you know, I, as I mentioned before, one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't have a more prominent um, black character in Tales of the Air Neverland, but I was you know, kind of like stuck in the, in the Barry mindset. Um, and so I'm taking, um, Jim, the runaway slave from, um, Mark Twain and Tom Sawyer, and I'm going to have him be a, uh, a very preeminent character character in there, you know, like, um, that he's become a lot more than anybody, uh, would have uh, ever assumed him. I'm going to have him probably become a U.S. Marshal. And so it's just, it, it's like, that's the fun for me when you're writing these books is you're taking things that people know about, but then you're doing something different and everything that I write, I, I want to be attainable to the audience, you know? So being a 53 year old white guy, I mean, that's most of my experience. I mean, uh-huh. my grandfather was black, but that really didn't impact my growing up too much. But but the uh, but you've really done different things with the the mermaids and the the the, the Indians who were you know the the savage red men were extremely different in the Neverland Chronicles. Yeah, I I mean when when you, when uh, the movie Pan came out and they completely whitewashed the characters, um, I, I I had a momentary struggle. I'm like, well, didn't you do the same thing? And I'm like, yes and no. I mean, Barry was a product of his time. And I mean, the the Indian tribe was, was called the Pickaninnies, which oh. is a really vile racist term. Um, and he portrayed Native Americans very stereotypically. And I simply couldn't write that. And I'm like, what am I going to do with this? Well, my dad was a nuclear, you know, um, he's a nuclear weapons officer on, on submarines. And so the only Reds that we ever heard about growing up were the Russians. Uh-huh. And, and so, you know, so I'm like Reds, Russians, that would be so easy. And then, you know, Lily Lalandra, you know, was kind of easy. And so, you know, even when you get into the final battle and, and the generals are talking, talking, they're, you know, they're kind of picking on people's fear of them, like, oh, the, the terrible red men, we're all going to destroy the world. Who wants to do that? It would take so much time, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, I wanted to put that in there, you know, the Russian steppes and the Cossacks and stuff, stuff like that. So I felt that was a legitimate cheat, um, it, you know, because it was making the best of a bad situation. Mm. And when I saw Pan... I mean, literally, when Pan came out, it was about two years after I put out Airship Neverland. I watched that movie with a notepad right next to me. <laughs> and I'm like, if anything's been ripped off out of here, I'm going to own somebody's soul. And <laughs> it really wasn't, though, yeah. 
Fortunately, it, it wasn't, and it was just horrible. I mean, you know, Hugh Jackman's great, but he even he couldn't save the day on that one. Um, I am fascinated by the characterization of Tink in your book. Uh, this You have taken a beloved character and turned it into something completely other and completely wonderful. Well, Tinkerbell is one of Jean's favorite imageries from Disney all you know, Yeah, overall. I'm kind of, yeah. I, when, I, when I came to that, you know, when I started lining out these ser- the series, um, I was inspired by um, steampunk artist, creator, now does kind of soft porn nude, um, Kato. <laughs> Um, who was one of the judges on the show Steampunk. But she's, she's an amazing fashion designer. And there, there was this picture of her um, sitting cross-legged. And she's got like platinum blonde hair and just looking off to the side. And I saw that and I'm like, that's the Tinkerbell I want. And so she was kind of inspired by that look. The mischief and the mayhem, you know, uh, more from uh, my daughter when she was, uh, younger, you know, now she's uh, mom with three, you know, three kids and, um, you know, one, uh, my most recent grandchild, uh, a daughter about probably two months now. Um, but so I had that kind of mayhem, you know, uh, idea, but I also just pictured Tinkerbell ch- chopping on a cigar. <laughs> and, and she's a tinker. She tinkers with things. That, that was that was it. I'm like, okay, the name Tinker Bell. Okay, what are you going to do with that? And I'm like, ships tinker, and that's where I went with it. Um, so it's Angela Bell, but she is the ships tinker. So therefore, she is the Tinker Bell. And I mean, she's the heart and soul of the series. The, the series is really all about Tink. You know, when you sit down and, and read through it, she's the running heart and soul of the storyline. You know, she's the innocent caught up in the middle of, you know, of all this. Um, Peter Pan, to me, in the first book, is kind of a loser. And I wanted to slap him. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, basically, he's this schleb, and and it's not really his fault. You know, here he was, you know, rescued and dumped into uh, an orphanage, which... If you read the expanded uh, edition, and I think it might also be in, in chapter two, it basically he gets dumped into orphanages and, and apprentice and apprenticed out, and um, Alistair is watching him over all this time, you know, trying to keep him out of trouble, and, and you know, but the guy is just kind of dumped into a universe that isn't his and forced forced to go. He doesn't know anything about who he is, which is why when Tink finds him, he's this staggering drunk. And because he thinks he's going insane because he hears ticking and he's seen this giant crocodile, you know, fire lightning bolts at, at pirates falling from the skies and, and things like that. And, and so that's the whole conversation when you find him in the bar and he's he's like, uh, so, so what are you going to do? He's like, oh, I think I'm going to go mad today. <laughs> and uh, guys like, well, is there much future in that? And he's like, well, I could become a member of parliament. Um, <laughs> so once he starts to find out who he is at the very end, you know, of, of this, he's expected to be this king and, and, and then he's his king. And then he's just like, I really don't want that job. You know, that was your idea for me, not me. 
but then he has to deal with the ramifications of what would be to me a legitimate decision. But you know, what do you do when one of your heroes and, and, and your your Erzatz Messiah suddenly goes, nah? You know, and and that I kind of got from um, Illusions by Richard Bach, mm-hmm. uh, which was the, the tales of a reluctant Messiah, and that's kind of inspired me of how what I was going to do with um, Peter there is, you know, you want to dash everybody's expectations. You know, people reading the book are going to go, well, this, and then all of a sudden that. And I know it's spoilers. Um, well, but, but, but nobody's safe in this book. Uh, there's there's character death around every corner because they're in a seriously dangerous business and, and it shows for a change. It's not like, yeah. uh, you know, series television where they're safe at least as long as you know the actor's got a contract. <laughs> Well, okay. Well, t- t- tell that to the guy that uh, played Carl <laughs> um, on Walking Ted. Mm, yes, we're, we're all great. Well, all grateful he died, but the poor kid was like, "Wait, what?" Uh, my, ser- my character goes all the way through the series, but I-, I think that in the book that I was writing, I-, I-, I had to follow some basic steampunk tropes. But I, and I, re- what was to be honest is when I wrote this, I had never seen Game of Thrones. I'd never read a book by George R. R. Martin. Um, you know, the only sadistic, uh, mass murderer that, 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 I, you know, was familiar with was Joss Whedon on his character. <laughs> yes, well. Um, and, uh, so when I went through there, I, I wanted people to get slightly comfortable, then get punched in the face, then get slightly comfortable and then get punched in the face so that they're constantly on edge. I mean, and the book has a lot of humor in it, but there's a lot of darkness in it. And I think the darkest character in there is Elspeth. And um, she's not inspired by anyone that's not like my ex-wife or, or anything <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah. You know, bad, bad girl for you know, bad girl for anything like that. I just sat there and when I created the character, um, it was more along the lines of I wanted a companion for Hook. And I wanted a companion that was actually darker than Hook because I, I yeah. had this idea that, that is slowly revealed, you know, throughout the series that Hook is not everything you think he is. And, and but but, you know, Elspeth is, is this kind of Svenjali that that's going around and is turning things for her own reason, reasons. And, you know, having having grown up in in the uh, Catholic church, obviously inspired like the writing of Pope Joan and Michael. But one of the things that I wanted to create was this, you know, um, position that Elspeth has as, um, the ambassador. I can't even remember, uh, the, the, uh, the term I use for, but it's like, you know, kind of like Pope, you know, the, the vice president Pope, you know, the vice Pope, the sigil. Yes. Sigil. Thank you. And so she's got this all going on, but then I also wanted to show some of the darker sides of things that I'd counter, countered, uh, you know, in the Church of Rome and in various other religions, that there's this dark, horrible side that, you know, people are, you know, kind of, we see it today in, in the media where people are claiming to be Christian, Christians, are professing Christianity and then doing very horrible things. Um, well, that's so been a thing, to, but that's been a thing since the Crusades, hasn't it? 
Oh yeah, I mean, you know, that that's that's something that I usually bring up whenever you know people start going anti-Muslim rhetoric. I'm like, hey, we started all that crap. Um, right. Let's study our history here. But but it, just from my experience, you know, you know, as a person of faith, and having been disappointed by a lot of people, um, you know, when I was young and I was with the you know a Church of Christ, which is very legalistic. I had this one pastor I really, really liked, and, you know, I was 13, 14, and he ran off with the church secretary, and then the following week, the song leader ran off with the wife of the pastor that had just run off with the church secretary. (laughs) And I'm like, wow. That's going to damage your faith. (laughs) So so I wanted to to contrast to, to Joan, who really is a sincere individual with this person that was power hungry, you know, in, in, in it to win it type type thing. Whereas Joan's more, uh, she's a professional woman. She's a professional wife. She has this very important job. Something bad happens to her. And then she has her own crisis of faith. And that was the whole point is, you know, when, when I write fiction, I don't want to, uh, anybody to think, well, I'm going to come across since I'm a Christ follower and you know, Bible thump, you know, I just want all characters to ring true. So I want to show them with their warts and, you know, without their warts. And of course, when you have villains, they have to be nasty. But they're not, but they're not cardboard cutout nasty. I mean, you know, Hook went through a lot to get the way he was too. uh, As you go through the series and then you find out even he's being manipulated in ways that he didn't understand. He didn't understand. Um, you know, I want the reader to suddenly like, oh, my God, I, I didn't see that coming. And even in your, your, you know, your hooks and, you know, your Darth Vader's and, st- you know, stuff like that, you want them to resonate and you want them to be human and attainable. And, of course, Vader got botched a little bit on his backstory, but I, I, I'm still in therapy for that one. But um, you, you want to have everybody be genuine. Otherwise, I think you're cheating the reader. I agree. And the it's it's often said that a villain never believes that they are the villain. I mean, Hook's Hook's motivation, Hooker, John Hooker, uh, uh, his motivation uh, before he took the moniker Hook for himself, uh, his his motivation was uh, to make. Um, the kingdom of Brighton, um, make Brighton, yeah, make Brighton Brighton Brighton, great again. Yeah. Make Brighton great again, you know, by effectively, uh, oppressing everybody else on the sea, you know, being, being the scourge of the sea, being the strongest there was. And, uh, so he thought he was doing, he thought he was a patriot. And that's something that I got from growing, growing up. I mean, you know, the, the bad, the bad stuff in the childhood, uh, aside, you know, my dad was a naval officer. And so I grew up, you know, I was born in 1964. So going up, you know, through the cold war, um, you know, through, through, you know, the really tense part with, you know, um, with Reagan and Carter and all of this. And, you know, that was the big enemy, you know, and my dad would have these, you know, slogans, they'd wear t-shirts that say 24, uh, empty missile tubes, 300 million dead. It's Miller time. There was this kind of this, just that's the enemy and they're subhuman and they need to be destroyed. 
And of course, the Russians have the same view and to some extent still have the same same view of us. It's always the other. You know, the other is the villain. The other is subhuman. The other is scum. And so when, you know, Hook has this speech when he when he's found out for being a pirate. I mean, he's basically doing that piracy to fund his own war. And when he gets found out, he just labels into them. They're subhuman. You know, you know, they they share everything together. You know, so that was like kind of the homage to the communism there there and you know and your dad promised that would you would be this and that and so that comes from a very genuine understanding of military officers that had that view about russia that they just it just needed to be turned into one big you know sheet of glass and we just needed to kill them all and you know even coming out of vietnam uh, vietnam i was old enough to to remember you know the end of that that you know Viet Cong, they're animals. And, and it's always, it's just a, such a horrible mindset. But growing up and getting away from, from all of that, I, you know, is really realized that that just was pandering to fear. You know, and Mary and I were talking about things today, you know, where all these people are, you know, beating up individuals and uh, this uh, immigrant fam- family that we were able to help a little bit over the weekend. Um, you know, I, these people, it's just, I'll, I'll give her a brief description of it. There's just this family of um, Spanish, Spanish family, and, and I mean Spain Spanish. And they had a sign say, hey, we need some help. And Mary and I were going to get get some food. So we grabbed them a pizza as well and gave it to them. When we sat down there talking to them, you know, they're, they're just, they had been screwed out of a job. They'd come from California to go to Cleveland to work. They worked there for two weeks. And their job fell apart. And so now he's trying to get home, having spent most of his savings coming out here. And so I'm sitting here talking to this guys. And the next thing I know is two cop cars roll up. And, you know, one like the big Wrangler. And then there's another cop car at a distance because we're in a Walmart and they look Hispanic. And so somebody called the cops. And so I actually had to sit there and talk to the cop. And say, hey, you know, we've got this under control. We're, we're going to do what we can to help these people people out. I didn't ask them their immigration status. And I looked at the guy and I said, look, I said, I know your job. You know, I, I, I know there's stuff going on. But just can you leave this alone and let me handle this and we'll take care of it and there won't be any problem. And the cop was actually really nice about it. He said, sure, no problem. And he got in the car and they drove off. But I was terrified, you know, that these people were going to be swooped up and, you know, thrown there. And while we're sitting there talking to them, you know, um, the mother comes out of the car and she has a one month old baby that was born at, you know, when they came out uh, a month ago, was born in the hospital in um, Cleveland. Um, and then they lost their job. So, you know, they have this two week old baby, you know, at the time. You know, and then they're trying to find their way back to California. And it's just like these are human beings, you know, and we did what we could to help. And what was really amazing, you know, they're getting into a hotel and I'm talking to the guy there. And you could tell he was, you know, probably second generation uh, American or, you know, first generation immigrant or something like that. But you could kind of tell, you know, still had the accent and things like this. And I was telling him the story. And he's like, he needs a job? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, okay, I'll hire him. And it was just like that. Wow. And wow. So, 
he hired him on the spot. So I called this guy in because he's still in the car with his family. And, you know, I say, hey, you got a job. And he, he just about broke down in tears, you know, because he, you know, here's this guy with, you know, a, a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, a four-year-old, you know, a three-year-old, and, and, and now this brand-new brand baby. And um, he's got a wife who did not speak English. The only thing she could say was, God bless you and thank you. And, you know, we don't – I mean, I, I'm on Social Security disability. You know, I haven't been able to work for, for two years. You know, my, my wife works um, in a deli. We don't have a lot of money. But we knew that we had to do something because as much as we talk on social media and, and you know, rage against this, you have to put your, your money where your mouth is. But we had no knowledge that basically God would take this, lead this to this particular hotel at this particular time so that this guy would hire him, give him the job that he needed, and then sit there and promise to take care of him until he could get a full-time position because he could only work in part-time. So this guy is basically like, I know what you're going through. We've got this. And it was so humbling. And these are worldviews that I wouldn't have had had I not gotten divorced, had I not lost my job, and had I not gone on social you know, security disability because I was a child of white privilege. My dad was you know, a naval officer. We didn't want for anything. But when you get all that stripped away – and then you start to see the other side of the world in getting back to my writing. That's what my writing's about. You know, my writing's about people on the ragged edge. I mean, you take a look at you know, airship Neverland. It's been in exile for 18 years, you know, in, in fairy dust, never rust, which I'm going to pump. We're, we're doing an audio book Kickstarter for please go and support it. Cause the money's going straight to the actors um, because they came up to me and s- said, we want to, we want to do another book. And the first Kickstarter didn't go so well. I'm like, no, man, you didn't make any money. I can't do this to you. And they're like, we're going to do this. And I'm like, okay. So I let them set the Kickstarter goal. It's only three grand. And so if you donate it, you know, help us meet that goal. And that money goes to the actors, uh, you know. And um, once the book and the audio book goes out, a portion of all of that is going to be going to um, helping victims of um, sex trafficking. And so it's just... When you're when you're taken down from privilege, when you're when you're really slapped in the face with reality, you have two choices. You can become bitter or you can welcome the change and to, to be introduced to a world that that you hit, had either avoided or, or didn't know about. And so steampunk to me, you know, when I got into it was such a mind opening experience to just a group of people I never would have associated with. I mean, you know, I, I worshiped with the Church of Christ for many years, which is a very, very gray, legalistic, non, you know, unforgiving place um, in my experience. Um, so when I suddenly started writing science fiction and then hanging around, I'm like, oh, wow, you know, here's this really you know, wonderful guy, uh, Richard, and, you know, he's gay, he's had this partner longer than I was married to, you know, my first wife, you know, and then, and then you go and, you know, meeting different people just from all different standpoints that you were always taught to be afraid of or not to associate with. And then you're like, wow, you know, you get rid of your fear and you just open up your heart to compassion. You see all these different people. So, you know, the reason, like, and I warned you, I ramble. Um, the reason why is you read the books, you will find them littered with people I know. Because these people mean a lot to me, even if it's only, you know, like, like Susan. Susan is, is 
just been wonderful um, and supportive ever since I uh, got going. I wouldn't have met her if it wasn't for steampunk. Yeah, steampunk you know? and Facebook. Yeah, well. With this technological terror, we're all supposed to be afraid of Facebook. It's also brought people together in ways unimaginable. Yeah, I've got oh, a, Absolutely. I've got a, I mean, you know, that's why, um, you know, I really enjoy the fact that, that social media, as much as a albatross it can be for many people, um, just opens your minds up to a lot, you know, to a lot of different people. I'm going to throw a shout out to my, um, friend Frost Foxglove, uh, or as I know her, Z, um, she's the, mo- she's been the model for Elspeth ever since we got going. Uh-huh. And, um, and I've had four different models now, uh, for Tinkerbell originally was Cato, um, and, you know, for like the first year, but then her, her business demographic went into more erotic nature. And I just didn't really want people associating that with my Tinkerbell and so she was very lovely. She let me use her likeness, you know, for free. And I, I sent her, you know, uh, a message saying, you know, I really appreciate that. But, uh, you know, your business is going one way, mine's going the other way. And she was totally understanding. And then um, uh, for uh, many years, it's been Azrael LaFay, um, who does some really amazing uh, cosplay. And um, she's a local in the SCA, uh, masterful. Uh, fencer. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my daughter did it original was my original model, um, you know, just for sketching and photoshopping. And she got upset when I went to Cato. And then when Cato changed her business de- demographic, she didn't let me uh, live that one down. And uh, the last model, which is, you know, we have uh, for a top award, we did a limited edition um, tink poster. Uh, and uh, and so it's like a top prize. You can get uh, get it you know, as a canvas print or a framed one or, you know, the, the very top um, donators get it actually numbered on metal plates. And um, you've really but, got some superior um, uh, uh, donor perks in your Kickstarter. I have to compliment you on that. Our, our first Kickstarter, I mean, it was actually an Indiegogo. I overestimated. I wanted to raise um Four thousand dollars, you know, maybe more. We raised four hundred, and um, but we actually able to get the money. And so, you know, I had three actors, same ones who are doing this one. Michael Shea, who's doing all the voices. Tony Semenek, uh, who's our elder statesman. He's the narrator. Christine Peruski, who's who's just doesn't. They all do do amazing voice work, but Christine really stands out in this one. Because Mike's doing all the male vo- voices except for the na- narrator's role, so he does each and every one. He's he's a really great voice actor. Boy, he must but, be. I mean, sorry, in Fairy Dust Never Rusts, there's not only a ton of female voices, but there's several chapters where there's nobody but female talking, and so Christine has to do all these different voices, talking to herself. But the first two chapters, it's all they're all Arabic females. Oh, great. So she she really studied hard. I mean, we actually did try to find um, an Arabic voice actress and we just couldn't find one. Um, And so she sat there and listened to all these audios. And then when she does this, you really feel that it's several different women talking, you know, you listen very carefully. Yeah, you can tell it's the same actress, but she does such a great job 
And what's really amazing uh, is the uh, dialogue interchange between the male, you know, the men and the women, because they did not record these together. They recorded them in different studios across Michigan. Then everything was forwarded to Tony, who's our editor, and then he blends in, and then he blended it in. And he's really, really awesome at his job. And um, so I have a really great team. So when we only raised $400 for the audiobook of um, Air- Airship Neverland, they decided that they wanted to give all the money to Christine. Oh, wow. Because I was like, I'll divvy it up. And Mike and Tony said, well, we'll just give it to Christine. <clears throat> Which I thought was very gentlemanly of them. And, 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 and to be honest, when they did this Kickstarter, that hung very heavily over my mind. I'm like, no, I don't want to do it. We didn't raise enough money. I can't ask you to go through that again. It's a lot of hard work. And it was very stressful on me. And remember. And I simply didn't want to do it. And they're like, we really want to do this. And I said, okay, if you guys are going to do this, Tony, you direct. I'm going to sit over here and I'll kibitz. But I don't want to be in the day-to-day because it was just – it was more stress than I can bear. That's one of the problems I have with my bipolar disorder is too much stress and I will have a nervous breakdown. And some of them have been very, you know, serious and, you know, suicide attempts and wound up in the hospital. So I have to monitor my, my stress. And so, but Tony said, no problem. And I said, you know, if we do this, we need to do a Kickstarter, but Kickstarter's all or nothing. And they're like, we're prepared to take that risk. And I said, okay, you guys have to set the financial goal. $3,000, which I don't think is a lot. I mean, a lot of Kickstarters go for more than that. But the, the statement that I made is I do not make any money or will not take any money until their uh, their fees are taken care of because I would not be able to sleep if I took money and they didn't read the goals after you know this being the second one they've done. The fact that they're willing to do this and, and do it even going through the things they've gone through has been so humbling to me, you know, that, well, we really like this. We really believe in this project. And, and for somebody that's sitting at home on disability, feeling bad that he can't work, you know, cause I was always taught to work, you know, um, I, I, I've worked every day since I was 17, uh, pretty much, you know, and when you see these people putting this dedication in, that's why I wanted this time to be very different. I studied how Kickstarter worked. I looked at the prizes. I opened a Redbubble. I did all new graphics, you know, for the prizes, you know, and we, you know, all talked together about setting the levels and all of this. I wrote the story, but these people are the ones that really have done a yeoman's work in sacrificing for this. And I can't, I can't thank them enough. So, so go to, uh, Kickstarter.com, look for Fairy Dust Never Rusts, a steampunk yeah. audio book. Know it, love it, contribute to it. And, and like I said, you know, Tony, Mike, and Christine, thank you. They're, they're really brilliant actors, but, you know, as we all are, we're all kind of starving artists to one point. So uh, they deserve the money and the praise. Okay, and you deserve the money and the praise for the, air, the Chronicles of the Airship Neverland. Which I'm absolutely hooked on, and I'm I don't read a lot because I don't have time to do it. But uh, boy, am I going to make an exception in this case. This is this is one of the most exciting worlds to live in for, and knowing that there are at least two books ahead that I get to uh, I get yeah, to live yeah. in this world. 
It's I'm, I'm all I'm all for it. I'm all in. The, I'm I'm into this all. Uh, I, I've got to finish this book. Okay, John White. Thank you very much for being with us on this episode of The Event Horizon. You have been listening to the 200th episode of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for July 14th, 2018. Our guest today has been John R. White, author of the Tales of the Airship Neverland series of steampunk fantasy novels. This episode will air again on July 15th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern tomorrow afternoon. That's Sunday and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all of the times have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our own website at kryptonradio.com as podcasts. If you would like to purchase any of these books, please go to the announcement article about this show on kryptonradio.com and use the convenient links. There is even a role-playing game John has designed around this universe. Krypton Radio is listener-supported science fiction geek culture radio and the vast majority of our funding comes from listeners just like you if you liked this evening's program and enjoy listening to krypton radio please visit patreon.com slash krypton radio and contribute whatever you can we live or die on your contributions and we appreciate your support the Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program is copyright 2018 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>